0: morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, open up to Galatians chapter 4. Um, I'll let you know a couple things as you're turning there. First off, I don't normally sit when I teach, and there's a reason for that here that I'll explain in just a minute. Um, So if you're wondering, has Aaron gone trendy? Is he a new hip, cool pastor? Obviously not, okay? Um, There's a purpose here. Secondly, um, we are testing out some new technology today. Um, So this phone right here, is actually recording my voice, and it's being transmitted to earbuds to some folks in our congregation right now so that they can actually hear the message in Spanish um, in real time, and so um, I noticed earlier, I was testing one in the hallway about five minutes ago, and it started playing just random music. So if you hear that um, through one of your neighbors, we, we don't know why. We're trying to figure this stuff out, so this is what technology does. Um, very last thing, and hopefully you're at Galatians 4, um, so we received word this week through one of our main partners uh, through the Welcome our House um, that partners with us at the Finding Hope Center, that they're working with three organizations that are working on resettling um, Afghan refugees here in northwest Columbus. And so we got word that through one of those organizations, we're not sure about the other two, but through one of those organizations, they're anticipating up to 65 families um, that are going to be calling the Dublin area home. And so I just want to get that on your radar and just ask you to pray. Um, We will do what we can with what we have over and above, being generous to people. Um, But God is definitely bringing the mission field to our doorstep. And uh, let's just make sure that we're ready, willing, and able to serve families however the Lord sees fit. It's a pretty amazing thing that even in the midst of what was a chaotic situation, that that can be redeemed by the gospel and people could meet Jesus as a result of that. So uh, sign me up for that. All right. Galatians chapter 4. As we continue this series that we've called God's Space, and uh, in Galatians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 12 and read down through verse 20, and I'll ask if you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. As Paul writes to the Galatian church, and he says these words, he says, I beg you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I also became like you. You have not wronged me. You know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh, and you did not despise or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, rather than reject me, what did they do? You received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. The most important verse in this whole passage right here is verse 15. Paul says, where then is your blessing? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me." So then, have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? They court you eagerly. He's talking about the Judaizers. But not for good. They want to exclude you from me so that you would pursue them. But it is always good to be pursued in a good manner, and not just when I am with you. Verse 19, the theological encompassing verse of this entire book. Paul says, My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I just don't know what to do about you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, I pray now as we um, just walk through this passage together today, Jesus, would you teach us? God, would you take these verses in your scripture and teach us, mold us, shape us into the image of Jesus? God, give us open ears to hear from you this morning. God, would you soften our hearts in this moment to hear from the throne room of heaven the very thing that you want us to know today? And God, would you give us a willing and obedient spirit to walk out the truth that we encounter? Lord, we don't want to be just hearers of the word, but Father, we want to be doers of the word. And I pray that is true for each one of us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, here in Galatians, we're now 14 weeks into this book, and up to this point, Paul has spent a pretty considerable amount of time defending this idea that salvation is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. You've probably heard us use that that phrase over these last 14 weeks of Jesus plus something does not equal salvation, but Jesus plus nothing actually equals salvation, And we said that the reason that this letter was written is because the Judaizers, these Jewish false teachers, had infiltrated the Galatian church after Paul had been there, preached the gospel, people were saved, churches were started. They came in and they said, no, 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 if you really want to be saved, you actually have to follow Jewish ritual practice and custom. That's what it takes to be saved. It's not just Jesus. No, you have to do these Jewish things because that really shows that you're committed to God. That shows that you're actually one of God's kids. And Paul has reminded us over and over, and I'm going to continue to echo it again. Salvation is found only in Jesus. If you want to be right with God, it's nothing based on your own efforts. We said last week, if we try to get right with God on our own, that is called legalism. That is a, a false religion. We get right with God because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and the overflow of that relationship with Jesus is participating in religious activity. I don't do it to earn God's favor. I do it because I have earned God's favor. There's a stark difference there. And Paul continues to emphasize that with this church. Now, why am I seated? This is so, I don't like this, okay? This is because if you know me, this is Aaron. I hoot holler, I I scream, I yell, I sweat. Like we, we get after it typically here at Living Hope. And I might still get up a little bit because I, I need to. like I, I'm like a kid with ADHD pi r squared kind of a thing. It's like it just as in my veins. But what I, what I wanted to be seated this morning with this letter is because of the tone of this passage. You see, up to this point in Galatians, 84 verses Paul has written that we've read so far. And up to this point, Paul has not held back any punches. I mean, think about this. If you look back in, in chapter 1, If you remember in chapter 1, Paul literally says, hey, Jewish false teachers, Judaizers, a curse be upon you. That's stark language. Like, that's pretty strong. I mean, Paul says in like chapter 2, chapter 3 of Galatians, he says, you foolish Galatians. Like, pretty intense language. He tells them over and over, if you believe anything but the gospel of Jesus, and you try to add to it, like, you are cursed, you are foolish, something is wrong with you, and you are an enemy of God. But right here in Galatians chapter 4, here's what happens. The emotions finally settle down. And Paul spends these verses really just trying to get to the heart of the issue. I've got to stand up. Think about it this way. Think about it this way. How many of you have ever gotten in trouble with one of your parents, maybe when you were younger because you stayed up past curfew? That's a story of my life. And how often that this, would be, this would be the scenario that you encountered once you finally made it home. You're supposed to be home at 11, you got home at 12.30. You finally do make it home. You walk in. Who's sitting at the kitchen table? Either your mom or your dad. Me, it was my mom. My dad was already asleep. Your mom's sitting down at the kitchen table, and she says, sit down. We need to talk. And your mother proceeds to stand up from the table as you're seated at the table. And what does she do? And if you didn't have this childhood, then we need to talk. I got some stories to tell you. My mom would just light, light into me. Like, she would just let it rip. And if I tried to talk back, what would my mom do? She'd smack me. She's like, I didn't tell you to talk yet. Anybody sympathize with you? Some of you are like, yes. But then what typically happened? I know this was true at our house. Once mom just let her rip, and she really lit into me for a little bit, eventually mom sits back down at the table, and the emotions settle down. She's like, why did you do that? And they talk to you. That's what Paul's doing here with the Galatians. I mean, he spent 84 verses with boxing gloves on, just pummeling these people, giving them a black eye. And he's saying, what is wrong with you? And now he gets to the heart of the letter and he shows me, he's like, guys, I love you. What are you doing? So I want you to look at these verses with me. Let's, we're going to start in verse 12. And I want us to simply just walk through these and in, in really just this, this posture of almost like a parent sitting at a table. Paul's sitting at the table with us in the Galatians today where he's relaxed, his emotions have settled, he's calmed down a little bit, and he's simply asking them this question. He's like, guys, what are you doing? I've shared the gospel with you. You know what salvation is. You know it's found only in Jesus. And I've screamed at you for 84 verses. What are you doing? Look again with me at verse 12. Paul starts off first, if you take notes, the first thing is this. He starts off with some genuine concern. There's only two points today, so you all are lucky. But look at what he says in verse 12. He says, "I, I beg you, brothers and sisters... I beg you, brothers and sisters, become as I am, for I have also become as you are, and you have not wronged me. If you have an ink pen and a a paper copy of God's word, I want you to circle those first three words in this passage, I beg you. Those are three powerful words that really set the stage for these next nine verses here in in Galatians chapter 4. Again, over and over, 84 verses, salvation is found only in Jesus. Yet you guys are giving all of that up to go follow these false teachers. And his frustrations peak, his emotions settle, Paul sits down at the table with the Galatians and he's like, guys, listen to my heart. I'm begging you, stop. I'm begging you, stop following these people. I mean, again, you can see that picture of a mom sitting across the table from one of their children saying, Why do you keep making these decisions that you're making? I am begging you to please quit. Please stop doing what you're doing because you don't understand the harm and destruction that you're about to bring upon yourself. For the Judaizers, they were bringing this false message of salvation. And Paul says, stop listening to them. Salvation's found only in Jesus. And if you try to go down this religious road, you are bringing destruction upon yourself. I'm begging you, stop. Look at what he goes on to say. He says, brothers and sisters, become as I am, for I have also become as you are, and you have not wronged me. What's Paul saying there? Very simple phrase. Write this one down. Paul says, when I came to minister to you in Galatia, I became like you were. What does that mean? It means that Paul stepped into the Galatian culture. Paul understood the culture of the Gentiles, and he was willing to lay aside his Jewishness, to become as they are, to bring the message of the gospel that they needed. Here's a little point of application for it. Let's step over here for a second. This is free. All right, Christians, hear this this morning. We need to make sure that if we want to be effective witnesses for the gospel, that we're willing to change our methods of communicating it, but we never compromise the message we do communicate. We're on the same page there. The methodology in which the gospel is communicated may change, but the message that we preach never changes. That's what Paul is telling them here. When I came to Galatia, I didn't come as a Jew because that wouldn't have made sense. He was ministering to Gentiles. So Paul said, I laid aside all of my Jewishness in order to come and become one of you, understand your culture, understand the way things worked where you live so that I could be an effective minister of the gospel. You see, Paul could have shown up in Galatia and he could have just done the Jewish thing and said, you need to convert to Judaism. You have to get circumcised. You must go to the temple and worship. You have to offer sacrifices. But he didn't do that to these people. Why? Because Paul personally had found freedom in Jesus and he wanted them to experience it too. And he sits down at the table with him. He says, y'all, I'm begging you. I became like you were so that you could become like me. I want you to find salvation in Jesus. I want you to understand that justification is not in your own efforts, and it's in Jesus alone. Look with me at Philippians chapter 3. I want to read these few verses for you. It'll be up on the screen as well. Uh, Paul talks about this in Philippians, and we looked at this last year. I thought this was so important. Paul says in Philippians 3, starting in verse 4, he says, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anybody has grounds for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. Okay, so, so Paul was a Jew beyond all Jews. Like, like he was super, super Jewish man. I don't know what you would call him without being rude. Super, super Jewish man. Anyways, that's probably like super offensive. So if we can cut that off the video and the radio. <laughs> Gracious. Super Jewish man, Joe. Write that one down. Look what he says. Paul says, I was circumcised. That wasn't in my notes. If you all couldn't guess that. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew, born of Hebrews, meant his mom and dad were both Jewish. That's important. Regarding the law, I was a Pharisee, meaning that he had raised to the highest ranks of Judaism. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church, Paul thought he was getting rid of false teachers. Regarding righteousness that is in the law, blameless. What's that mean? Paul says, the entire law, over 600 laws, I kept them perfectly. Nobody was like me. But he says, but everything that was gained to me, I considered it a loss. Why? Because of Jesus. Paul says, I, I've achieved so much in regards to Judaism. Goodness, folks, I shouldn't have a table because I can't sit. I'm about to throw a fit. He says, I've achieved so much in Judaism. But because I've met Jesus, it's all a loss. What's he go on to say in verse 8? More than that, I consider everything, everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus as my Lord. There's nothing better. Paul didn't go into Galatia trying to be a Jew. He says none of that matters. I found Jesus and the freedom that Jesus offered And he said, you guys experienced that freedom when I was there in Acts chapter 14, but you've exchanged those chains of paganism for what? Chains of legalism. And you think yet again that if you want to get right with God, it's somehow dependent upon your effort. Paul says, that's not what I told you. Become like me. I've experienced the freedom in Christ, and I want you to experience that too. Now in verse 12, something significant happens. Paul starts looking backwards. If you remember in Acts chapter 13, 14 and 15, that was where Paul, we have this historical document of this mission trip to Galatia. And now here, what's going on in Galatians chapter four, starting in the second half of verse 12, is Paul is looking back at that trip and he's getting to the heart of the matter. He's getting to really this personal conversation with the Galatians So he's pleading with them across from the table. He's like, guys, please just get this right. He says, do you all remember what happened when I came there? Look at what he says in verse 12b. He says, first off, you have not wronged me. You have not wronged me. We could really skip over that verse, but I don't want us to miss what's going on there. In Acts chapter 13 and 14, when Paul first arrived um, in the region of Galatia, he first went to a region called Iconium. It was part of Galatia. They arrived there. The Bible says that when Paul arrived there, preached the gospel, that the Jews conspired against him and tried. They were going to stone him and kill him. So Paul and Barnabas, what did they do? They fled. They left. Where did they go next? They went in Acts 14 to a place called Lystra. If you remember this last week, Paul and Barnabas met a man on the road who was lame from birth, didn't couldn't walk. They tell him, they said, "Stand, you know, be healed in the name of Jesus. The man's healed completely. And what do the crowds of people do? They say, the gods have come among us. Zeus and Hermes are here. Meaning they were pagans following some sort of mythological deities. Paul, they've been t- end up tearing their robes and they're like, no, no, no. Don't offer sacrifices to us. Don't worship us. We come bringing in the message of Jesus. What happens? The Jews and the Gentiles in that city throw a fit. Wait a minute. You're not Zeus. You're not Hermes. What are you talking about? Who are you and how did you do this? You know what the Bible says that they did? It says they grabbed large stones and they stoned Paul. If you don't know what stoning is, that basically means they would beat somebody almost to the point of death, leave them for dead, then take very large rocks, typically between 20 and 40 pounds, take those rocks and hurl them at the head of the human being with the ultimate goal of killing them. It says they did that to Paul, drug him outside of the gates of the city streets and left him for dead. Paul was beaten and bruised so much that they just left him at the city gate because they thought he was dead. Do you know what the Bible says? That Paul got up and kept going. Paul's a bad dude. If you read Josephus' writing, it actually says that Paul probably only stood about five and a half feet tall, had a really pointy nose, bald head, and hunched back, but he was a bad dude. Paul was a bad dude. Here's what's interesting to me, and this is what Paul's meaning here when he says, you have not wronged me. You know, when Paul came to the region of Galatia there, These Galatians could have followed those crowds of people. They could have participated in the stoning of Paul. They could have conspired against Paul. They could have participated in his attempted execution. But you know what some of those Galatians did? I love this. They received the message of Jesus. They got saved and they were for Paul. How do we know that's true? You can continue to read in Acts chapter 14 towards the end of the chapter. The Bible actually says that Paul and Barnabas came back through the region of Galatia And you know what they did? They encouraged the believers and they encouraged the churches that were not there before Paul and Barnabas got there. That means there were some who did not participate in what the crowds were doing, but decided to believe the message of Jesus and to love Paul. And now churches were started and people were in heaven. Paul says, when I first came to you, you could have wronged me, but you didn't. Thank you. Now, what are you doing? Keep going here in this passage in verse 13. Paul says, "You have not wronged me. You know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh." I was reading this week John MacArthur's take on this passage, and he says, Galatia was probably not on Paul's original itinerary for this mission trip. But Paul actually ended up in Galatia because he got sick. There was some sort of physical ailment that was wrong with him, and in the sovereignty of God, he ended up going to Galatia to preach the gospel. It was part of God's plan for him to go there and minister to these people so the kingdom of God would expand. Verse 14, he says, you didn't despise me or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, what they do, you receive me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Now, we don't really know what Paul's sickness was exactly. A lot of Bible teachers think that he had contracted malaria and it was affecting his vision, causing him to have... You know how like your kids get eye goop. This is free, too. All right? Imagine, Paul, malaria. Malaria, if you know something about it, malaria kind of like rears its ugly head, and then it goes away. And it rears its ugly head, and then it goes away. It rears its head. And it was causing intense headaches for him. His eyes were getting all crusted over from the headaches and the just intense pain, the, what it was doing to his vision here. And he says, y'all, when, when I came to Galatia, not only did you not participate in the crowds, but you actually received me. Despite the physical condition that I was enduring and the way that I looked, you actually brought me in and you cared for me and you loved me and and you were you were family to me. Hey, two words in your Bible, I want you to circle in verse 14, the word despise and the word reject. Those are strong words in the Greek because what Paul actually tells them, he says with despise, he says, you did not view me as good for nothing. You didn't view me as good for nothing. When he says that you didn't reject me, that means that you actually, you didn't spit me out from your mouth. You didn't vomit me out because you you didn't want to be near me. Those are two really strong words. Instead, they loved and cared for him. And then here's what I love about this, y'all, because Paul, Paul presses rewind for us to Acts chapter 14. Crowds go crazy. These small group of people receive Paul in as part of their family despite his physical condition. No, no, no. They love Paul. They receive Paul. They care for Paul. And they respond to the message that Paul brought. And these very same people now who he's writing the Galatian letter to are treating Paul as their enemy. These people are saying Paul is a liar. The message he preaches is false. He has zero authority in anything spiritual. You need to run from him. Paul, for lack of a better term, is just a flat-out loser. Run from him. And they're treating Paul like the dirt of the earth. These very people who in Acts chapter 14 received him and loved him and cared for him. Do You see why Paul's saying, I beg you? His heart is broken over the Galatians. His soul is literally shattered because their reception was so strong in the beginning and now they're perpetuating this lie that Paul is their enemy. Let me pull a curtain back for you real quick. Joe and I talk about this sometimes. It's, it's amazing, you know, pastoral ministry, we, we call this a terrifying honor is the phrase we've been using recently. That the Lord would entrust us with the Word of God to communicate it to the people of God. It's a terrifying honor. And we believe Scripture teaches that someday we will have to stand in the presence of our Jesus and give an account for the things that we taught from this book, whether or not we did it accurately to the glory of God. I believe that to be true. And, and to give you a, a pullback on the pastor's heart that we see here with Paul, but again, as Joe and I were talking about this, it, it resonates in our hearts too. I can tell you story after story over these last three and a half years, as I'm sure Pastor Joe could as well, of, of people that received us like the Galatians initially. So many people, and many of you are still in this room, so generous to our families, so kind, so loving, genuine concern for us. Yet, on a dime, we could tell you story after story of people that turn on you. Nothing changed. We're still just preaching Jesus. We, we believe from a pure motive, but people can turn on a dime. And immediately you go from their friend on Sunday to their enemy on Monday. It's amazing how many people, we're not looking for sympathy, we're just again, vulnerability with y'all, who on Sunday were all in, and two days later, if we were to see them in the grocery store, they avoid us. The heart breaks over that. I mean, Paul is dying inside right here. He's like, what happened to this blessedness of yours? We were together for the gospel. I mean, we were charging the gates of hell with water pistols ready to reach anybody and everybody with the message of Jesus. who can save anybody. And then all of a sudden, this false teacher comes in, this new thing comes in, and you're like, no, forget that. You're my enemy. I'm going to do this now. And Paul's stepping back, and he's like, what happened to you? Look what he goes on to say in verse 15, and this takes us into our second point. Paul says, where, where is your blessing? Again, modern English, let me put it into a a phrase for you. It's the two words. What happened? What changed? Why now? What's the problem? You initially received and loved me, Paul says, but now I'm your enemy. And look at what he says there in verse 15. For I testify to you. This is so important. Paul says that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me, actually. That's strong. Here's why we believe that Paul's uh, physical ailment was was his vision. And he tells the Galatians, he says, when I was with you the first time, you received me so well that you knew I was in such utter pain that you would have, if possible, done an eye transplant with me so that I wouldn't have to endure this pain anymore. And Paul says, now I'm your enemy? What happened? You see, he goes from genuine concern to point number two is genuine desire. Genuine desire. Look at verse 16. We're walking through a lot really fast today, so I hope you can track along. Genuine desire. Paul says, so what happened? Have I become your enemy because I I told you the truth? He tells him plain and clear. "Um, What happened? You exchanged the truth of the gospel for a lie of the devil. Rather than sticking with the Jesus that Paul preached, they believed now that Paul was a liar and that he was keeping something from them. Do you see the tactic of the false teachers? Oh, golly, here we go. I can't sit anymore. Listen to me, folks. Watch this. I want you to see this here. The Judaizers were teaching the Galatian people that Paul was keeping something from them that they needed to actually be holy. Can I tell you something? Satan's tactics never change. What did he tell Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3? God's keeping something from you. If you eat from the tree, you won't die. What did the Judaizers say? Paul's keeping something from you. You need these things so that you won't die. But what does the gospel say? You won't die because Jesus died in your place. Paul wasn't keeping something from them. Paul had something for them. That's what he wanted them to see here. Look at verse 17. This is so important. He says, the Judaizers court you eagerly. Again, that's some, some like hyperbole language there. Imagine like a, like a 15-year-old courting his, courting his new girlfriend. We've all been there before. You do anything and everything to get their attention so that they can be in your proximity. We've all been there. But this is what the Judaizers are doing. They're courting you, but Paul says, that's not for good. It's not for good. What did the Judaizers want from the Galatians? A following. They didn't care about their souls. That's what false teachers do. They, They want a large crowd, but they don't care about the people. They want to they want to amass more people following what they do, but they do not care about this in the, the depths of their souls. They don't care about the people. They just want more and more of them. And here's how they do it. Paul says they want to exclude you from me so that you'll pursue them. What was the tactic of the Judaizers on the Galatians? Isolation. You need to circle that. You need to write that word in your Bible. It's the word isolation. Because if if the Judaizers could get the Galatians isolated from the truth of the gospel, they could get them to believe anything. Listen, this one's free too. All right? We we talked about methods and message. This one's going to be free too. You need to write this down. Isolation always leads to compromise. Okay? Isolation. Proverbs talks about this over and over. Read Proverbs chapter 5. When it talks about a young man going into seduction, you know how he went into seduction? He left his home under the cover of night and he fell into, fell into a, a, a relationship with a prostitute. It's Proverbs chapter 5. How did that happen? Because he isolated himself from community, got away from it, fell into sin. Isolation always leads to destruction. Paul wanted these, or the Judaizers, wanted the Galatian believers to follow their false teaching. So what did they have to do to get them, get them there? They had to isolate them from Paul and the truth of the gospel to get them to believe the lies of the devil. Isolation always leads to destruction. What's the application for you and I from this passage? These are just kind of tidbits that are free today. Christian, surround yourself with the Word of God and the people of God and the community of God to stay in the will of God. We're on the same page. Surround yourself in the Word of God, the people of God, to stay in the community of God so that you stay in the will of God. Isolation always leads to destruction. You see it all the time. It's textbook. Happens all the time. Christians separate themselves from the church community, stop reading their Bibles as much as they should. What happens? Those people at that church did this to me. They didn't do anything to you. You isolated yourself from them rather than dealing with the problems that you had there. Don't isolate yourself. That leads always to destruction. Destruction. I'm never sitting again, Joe. I <laughs> can't do it, man. Gracious might. Stay in the Word of God and the community of God with the people of God. Isolation leads to destruction, Paul says. Look at this, verse 18. It's always good to be pursued in a good manner and not just when I'm with you. What's Paul saying? The Judaizers want you to follow them. I want you to follow Jesus. Paul says, it's not just when I'm with you. No, no, no. My heart's desire is that you would know Jesus. I don't want something from you. I want something for you. I want Jesus for you. That's what Paul's desire was. Now, most important verse in this whole passage, verse 19, Paul says, my children. That's such a significant phrase there. Paul uses that word children only in this letter. He never uses that word anywhere else in all of his letters in the New Testament. He only calls the Galatians his children. What does that show us? That despite in chapter 1 that he never told them that he loved them or he was praying for them, Paul cared for him a whole lot. He did care about this church. It's why he calls them his kids. It's a term of intimacy and endearment that he's referring to with them. He says, I'm suffering labor pains for you. I've, I've never had a baby, shocker. It's sad that I have to say that in this culture. Never had a baby. Man, we could preach. I can't do it. Anyways, I've never had a baby, but my wife has. Many of you women have. And they've told me labor pains are like the worst pain that you could ever experience. That's what Paul's saying here. He's like, he's like, I'm literally like in the depths of my bowels, in so much pain for you. My heart and my gut is aching. Why? Because I want Jesus to be formed in you. I don't just want you to follow Him. I want Him to be formed in you. I want you to mature, grow, and develop into Christ's likeness My heart aches for that to be true. What's the application as we transition to the Lord's Supper in a moment? This, This part of the letter is weird because there's not a very significant theological truth that we could really mine out here. So what is this point of application? I simply want to give you this. I've been praying this verse over you this week. That's it. Can I tell you that my heart's deepest desire for Living Hope Columbus is that Jesus would be formed in you? Like I I mean, gracious, let's pull the curtain back a minute. I love this church so much. And I want nothing more for the people in this church than Jesus to be formed in your soul. Y'all, I want you to love Jesus so much that it hurts. I want you to love the local church so much that you just, it's like it just overflows from you. I want you to love the Word of God so much that it makes a notable difference in your life. I want you to love the people of God that make up this church so much that you can't imagine not being part of this church community. I want you to love the city that God has called us to reach, Columbus, Ohio, so much. That your heart aches and yearns for people to know the freedom that is found in Jesus, and you, you just have to do something with it. I, gracious Mike, I'm not good at this, so hear me here. I love you guys so much. And I echo Paul's sentiments not the frustration, but the love and the burning desire, and the, just the gut of Paul, where he says, I want nothing more for you than for Jesus to be formed in you. And I will do anything and everything in my power to make that happen. And I want you to know that from my heart today. There's not a profound theological truth to close out this message. There's not a point of application for you to go do. I just simply want you to know as the people that make up Living Hope Columbus how much your pastor loves you from the depths of my soul. And I want Jesus to be formed in you so much. Can I pray for you? Father, you are so kind and gracious to this church. God, even though I couldn't sit for more than a few minutes, I pray the tone of Paul's heart was communicated to us today. That we would know, God, how serious the gospel message is that salvation is found in Jesus. And God, I pray that we would also know. God, I pray that this church would know That myself and Pastor Joe, we desire nothing more than for Jesus to be formed in them. God, would you give us a hunger for Jesus, for the Word of God, for the community you've called us to, for the local church, God, for more of the Spirit of God, so many things. God, would you form Christ in us? God, would you continue to do a work in our hearts surrounding that? We love you so much, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray these things. Amen. I'm going to ask if our praise team, as they're making their way up here, I thought it would be appropriate this week as we talk about this idea of Jesus being formed in us to close out our our service today, to close out our message today by taking the Lord's Supper together. And so, if you have a copy of the scriptures, I want to read a couple verses to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I think this is an appropriate way to close this out because. When Jesus, uh, before he left earth and ascended into heaven, he gave the local church two sacraments, two things that we do to remember what Jesus did on the cross for us. Number one is baptism. A few weeks ago, we baptized Diamond here at the church, and that was signifying death, burial, and resurrection with Jesus. But the second one that the Lord gave us is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask my two ushers if you guys want to begin to pass those out for me. And so one of them is symbolic in the sense that it's this visual representation of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. We can be forgiven of our sins. But the second one here through the the partaking of the Lord's Supper, the eating of this small wafer and this this juice, is the remembrance for us that on that cross that Jesus' body was broken for us and that His blood was shed for us. That through a broken body and shed blood, we can experience the forgiveness of our sins. But for me personally, I have always thought this is interesting that Jesus chose to do this. Number one, through the visual, but also through taste. You know, we have five senses and Jesus chose to use taste because honestly, taste is one of the most powerful senses we have. I told a story a couple years ago that often tastes can be associated with people. Here's what I mean by that. My grandma, before she passed away about 20 years ago, my grandma always made a world-famous pumpkin pie. Uh, So many people have tried to make grandma's pumpkin pie, and it's terrible, all right? Only grandma could make grandma's pumpkin pie. And I can remember as a child when grandma would make that pumpkin pie, going to her house at Thanksgiving or Christmas and eating that. And then when she passed 20 years ago, What's interesting is every Thanksgiving and every Christmas, when I sit down, I snag one of those, with my family around that Thanksgiving table and I eat pumpkin pie, do you know what I always do that first bite? I remember my grandma. Tastes are associated with people. And so when we have the opportunity as a church, we do this every couple months, every two, two three months typically, to eat this small wafer and to drink this little bit of juice It's to help us remember Jesus, to silence the noise around us and pause in this moment of reflection and remember Jesus. And that because Jesus' body was broken and Jesus' blood was shed, we can now experience the freedom that Christ offers, justification by faith through Jesus. And so I'm going to ask you now, if you want to open up that little top piece to expose that wafer. If you guys don't mind just playing around something in the background. Let's take, uh, let's take 30 seconds. I think it's always important in this moment just to take 30 seconds and just talk to the Lord. It can be confession of sin, thankfulness for something that He's done in your life this week. But just to, to focus our hearts on Jesus in this moment. Just a heart of gratitude, a heart of repentance, whatever that needs to be. Let's just take 30 seconds and spend a moment in prayer just focus your heart on the lord and then we'll we'll transition says in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For I received from the Lord Jesus what I passed on to you. He's looking back on when Jesus instituted this sacrament. He says, On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke that bread. And he said to his disciples, and he says to us in this room today, This is my body which is for you. It's broken for you. Jesus was on that cross. His body was broken for us. And every time we eat of this, he says in verse 24, we do this in remembrance of Jesus. Take eat. He goes on to say in verse 25, if you want to begin to open that small cup, that in the same way that Jesus took the cup after supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. See, friends, what's interesting about this is before Jesus, we were recipients of God's wrath. Jesus actually talks about a cup of God's wrath that would be poured out upon us. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus on that cross... Rather than a cup of wrath, we're recipients of a cup of a new covenant. The love, grace, and mercy of God that is lavished out upon us through His death on the cross, His burial, and His resurrection. It's amazing. Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant that's in my blood. As often as you drink that cup, do so in remembrance of me. And then listen to verse 26 before I pray. Paul says, As often as you eat that bread, as often as you drink that cup, here's what we're doing we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. You see, when you eat that wafer and you drink that cup, you are publicly acknowledging the fact that you believe that Jesus died, was buried, he will rise, he rose, and someday he's coming again. And until then, you're his. We're his. We're Jesus's. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this reminder today. And God, I pray now as we continue in worship, continue in response to what we've learned from your word, continue in response, Lord, to the proclamation of your death and resurrection, that, Lord, we give you the worship that only you deserve. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.